So today we continue on in a series. Uh, we continue, we're working through the book of Ephesians. Uh, it's funny because uh, Pastor Zach and I had planned to do a series on identity, uh, on who you are or who we are. So we had discussed doing this idea about this, this, this idea of identity uh, as we as a church look to discover our identity, but also as we as Christians discover our identity. And we had not planned Ephesians to be the series on identity, but it has turned into that because uh, the first week it just flowed well. And yes, last week Zach's uh, sermon came out to be through identity. And this week, uh, as we were looking, I'm struck through the idea of identity. And I have a great uh, support. He's obviously excited about identity. <laughs> Owen is like, yes, he wants to know. Um, he, 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 I, I, you know, I often think maybe I'll put babies to sleep by talking. But if you watch Owen while I'm preaching, he actually perks up. I, I, I feel... <laughs> almost like judged. I have to do really good because Owen's watching. Uh, so, so we've already looked at the first two chapters of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and if you missed one or both of those, they are available on the church podcast account, and just a uh, subtle advertisement that we still are podcasting all of our sermons. So they're up on iTunes or Spotify or all kinds of other po- podcast platforms, and if you're not sure how to access those, uh, ask someone uh, like a grandchild or even like a five-year-old because they will know how to get on there. Uh, so ask someone young, and they will be able to help out. And so today we, uh, we're looking at Ephesians 3, and I'm only going to preach from five verses. There's a lot in Ephesians 3 to look at, and we could probably spend a whole series on Ephesians 3. But um, we're going to look at five verses. So I'm going to read from Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 19. Uh, and I'm reading from the ESV translation. And so it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In those five verses, there is a load to unpack. There is tons we can look at. And I'm going to focus on a few things from those five verses, but there is a lot to understand and look at in those short verses. So the first thing I'm going to look at is I want to point out where Paul starts here. Paul starts this section by saying, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And this is really important. Paul starts with the most important thing we can start with. Paul starts with prayer. See, prayer is so vital. In a lot of books that I've been reading lately, one of the things that they're talking about what churches need is a lot of them want to talk about programs and they need this outreach and they need, they need this group or they need to sell their building and meet in you know, a gym or they need this and they need this. But one author said, I don't think churches need any of those things. Churches need pastors that are praying more. And they need people that are praying more. And so prayer is so vital, and this is where Paul starts. Prayer is what Paul begins with. Before he even begins to discuss what his wishes for them are, before he even says, this is what I would like for you, he says, before I do that, I bow my knees before the Father. He reminds the Ephesians that, hey, I'm praying for you. And that's so vital. I think we forget sometimes how important prayer is. But it's so encouraging sometimes when you hear someone just say, hey, 
I've been praying for you. And you know that they mean it. You know that, hey, you know what? They have been praying for you. It's encouraging when I'm going through seasons that are lows and highs, and people just reach out over, you know, Facebook or, or a phone call or an email just to say, hey, Lucas, we've been praying for you. And it's just such an important and powerful thing. And immediately, it doesn't matter if I'm still in that low. It doesn't matter that that email didn't fix it. Knowing that someone is praying for me immediately starts to make me feel loved. Reminds me that I'm cared for. And if you've ever got those emails, I imagine it's the same for you. The simple words, hey, I've been praying for you, is really important to hear. But sometimes do we forget to start with prayer? Do we forget that that's our place to go? Um, when we want to see the Spirit working, when we want to do something, when we want to reach out in the church, when we have an idea, before we get to that, do we start with prayer? My dad has this ridiculous phrase that I like to steal all the time. It doesn't make any sense, but it says it's smart to start. And what that means is he wants to start with prayer before we do anything else. And it's one of those sayings that you, I feel like you have to be a dad or you have to be older to understand it. Uh, so I don't fully get it, but I love the idea of it is smart to start. It's great to start with prayer. It's the most important thing. When we, we, when we want to see someone come to Christ, though, do we start first with prayer? I'm sure many of us want our friends, our family, uh, our coworkers, our neighbors. I'm sure many, if not all of us, want to see those people come to Jesus. We want to see our loved ones experience the beauty and the depth of his love and his grace and his mercy. I bet at family functions we take these opportunities to talk about church or faith and to say, hey, you know what? Our church is doing this really cool thing in two weeks and you should come. And sometimes if it naturally comes up, the idea of theology or talking about God, we often, I bet, take these opportunities to discuss the importance of Jesus and to discuss the reality and history of Jesus. I'm sure at Christmas we send out our invitations. At Easter, we send out our invitations. We remind our families and friends to come to church on those two very important days. But before all of that, have we started with prayer? I want everyone to, like, right now, in your mind, I want you to picture one person, one person in your life that you know that you want them to get to know Jesus. One person, just one person that more than anything, your wish for them is that they would meet Jesus. Your wish for them is that they would discover the depth of that love. Picture that person, picture their face, picture the last conversation you had with him or her, the last time you spoke to them. I can sense that all of us right now really want that person to come to develop that deep, meaningful relationship with Jesus that changes and transforms your life. I'm sure of it. But I'm going to ask, are you praying for it? I mean, are you really praying for it? Paul, when he describes prayer in Colossians, he talks about how you need to do it diligently. And diligence is this idea of persevering and working hard to see an outcome. Diligence isn't, uh, I did it once and it didn't work, so I didn't do it. Diligence is, you know, like if someone training for a marathon. They are working hard constantly at it. And so prayer is this idea, this thing that we have to do with diligence, that we have to work hard at it. And so are we really praying for that person? I mean, when was the last time you got down on your hands and your knees and you spent hours just praying for that one person? And are you doing it regularly? Are you doing it daily? Are you bringing this person before God and praying that the Spirit would reach them? Praying that Jesus would put some nudges on their heart, that Jesus would transform them. 
C.S. Lewis tells a story in one of his books, and I can't tell you which one it is because I read too many books and don't write enough down. But C.S. Lewis tells this story about a man who prayed for his three friends. He decided he really wanted his three friends to get to know Jesus. That was the most important thing he did. And so he decided, he said, the most important thing I can do is I'm going to pray for my friends every single day. And so every single day, this man prayed for his three friends by name. He lifted his three friends up, and he lifted them up to Jesus. And every single day, he was down on his hands and knees doing this. Now, one of his friends became a Christian after a couple years of prayer. Another, after 15 years of prayer, he became a Christian. And the third came to Jesus on his deathbed many, many, many years later. But this man didn't stop praying for his three friends every single day. I'm sure he had opportunities for conversations. I'm sure he had opportunities to share with them and discuss with them. Perhaps he invited them to church functions. But the most important thing this man did was he prayed for his friends. Someone recently suggested that our church should start an alpha group, saying, you guys are doing a lot of great things. We should, you know, we should reach out. And uh, an alpha group is the best way to do that. We should really get this thing going. Because uh, if we have an alpha group, then I can friend, invite all my friends. I can invite my friends to church or, or to dinner, and we can have these great conversations. Uh, and you and Zach can lead them, and they'll get to know Jesus. And so, you know, Luke, I really think we need an alpha group. And that's a good idea. But before we do that, are you praying for that friend? Are you daily lifting them up and covering them in prayer? If you're not praying for your friend or your family or coworker, this person that you're picturing right now, that an alpha group is not going to be the solution. An alpha group is not what we need to start with. We don't need another outreach group. We need a church of 150 people that are on their knees daily praying. We need to start with that. We need to be like Paul and get on our hands and get on our knees and pray. And I bet if we just start with that, I bet we will see results. I bet if we start with that, we will see more powerful things that we ever thought could happen. I bet prayer will get us pretty far. The next thing we see in this little section of scripture is the what. So Paul says he's been praying for, and then he says, I'm praying for you, and this reason, he says, for this reason, I get on my hands and my knees. So what has Paul been praying for, for his friends in Ephesians? Well, he says in verse 15, he says, I've been praying that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit to your inner being. The thing that Paul is praying for right now, the first thing he's praying for these Ephesians is he's praying for strength. He says, I'm praying that you would be strengthened with power. The original verb in the Greek that is used here is one that indicates to be made strong or to be made capable. Because Paul is talking to this church in Ephesus who is overwhelmed with Greek culture. And he's reminding the church in Ephesus that he wants them to be strengthened and to be capable in their faith. He says he wants them to be strengthened with power so that they're able to be equipped or able to stand firm. And this little verse has something in it that we might not see right away, but we need to be made very aware of. And it's the question of where does Paul say that power comes from? Where does Paul say this strength will come from? Paul doesn't say, hey, dig deep inside. You got it, right? It's not a Nike commercial. He doesn't say, you know, you just need this new pair of kicks, and then you got them. Paul says that the, the, pow sorry, the power, he says, I'm praying that the power comes from the Spirit. 
He's saying, he's praying that this power, power would come from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from their discipleship group. It doesn't come from the pastor in a one-on-one. It doesn't come from getting another degree in biblical studies. It doesn't come from understanding the biggest and deepest theology books out there. It doesn't come from how many letters come after your name when you put it on the bottom of a piece of paper. The power from being a Christian, the power to walk this faith, comes from the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone. The early church constantly teaches this exact same message that they say the power or the strength to live this Christian life, the power to walk this Christian faith, it only comes from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from you. It's not something we can just dig deep inside and work up the courage to do it. It's not something that we just need to take that next alpha course and then we'll be filled with the Spirit. The power comes from the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone. It doesn't get something or it's not something that you get simply by being a Christian for a longer time. It's not like levels, like you've been a Christian for 50 years so you have X power, but you know, you've only been a Christian for 25 years so you only got this much power. It's not like that. The power that you have, the strength that you get to walk the Christian faith comes from the Holy Spirit living inside you and living and working inside you. The Holy Spirit is what makes us strong. The Holy Spirit is what helps you walk the walk when things really start to suck. You know, I like this idea that people say, um, you know, you can get through this or you can do it, but I think that's wrong when when we tell others in the Christian church or others in our faith family that you can do this. Hey, if you just, you know, you work at it, you can do it. The reality is, is, well, no, no, I can't do it. And that's the point. I can't do it alone. The Holy Spirit is the one who does it through us. This idea of dig deep that society says is so wrong. Because Paul is very clear that we can't do this. We cannot accomplish it on our own. We don't have the power to live this Christian faith by ourselves. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to work through us. Because he's clear if the Holy Spirit is working through us, if the Holy Spirit is in our hearts and our lives, if we stop trying to do it on our own and let Jesus do it through us, then we truly can do it. See, the Holy Spirit living inside you, or God living inside you, transforms you who you are at the deepest parts of your soul. At the deepest parts of your inner being, you can be changed. The Holy Spirit changes you from the inside out, not the outside in. It changes your character. He changes your personality. changes your core being, the who you are, and then eventually all of that starts to spill over starts to spill over onto the outside and people start to realize that on the outside, you look like a very different person too. And this is really important to remember because in the church, we struggle with pride and we don't like to admit it. The longer, especially, the longer we've become a Christian or the more educated you are as a Christian or the more time in leadership you spend as a Christian, the more prone you are to starting to think you can do this on your own because we've been doing it for so long that we forget it's not us doing it. It's God doing it. Someone said to me recently this weekend at the retreat uh, from another church, they said, Lucas, I've been hearing you are doing great things at Avenue Road. And I said, I want to correct you. Uh, I haven't been doing anything at Avenue Road. God's been doing things at Avenue Road. So we can't do this Christian thing on our church, and so it's on our own, and it's so important that we as a church remember that. Because when we remember it, we go, well, you know what, God? I can't do it, so you do it. Let me let you do this. We have to remember that Jesus said the words, unless you change and become like these little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Now that doesn't reply or sorry imply our maturity level, but I do use that at youth group, saying God told me to be childish. Uh, he wasn't referring to our age; he was referring to our pride, our humility. Because children are great, because children aren't sure what they are doing half the time. They're really not sure. They pretend kind of like they've got it going on, but if you ask them what are you doing, I don't know. I remember when I was younger, I was being babysat by my aunt, uh, and I filled her uh, VCR with uh, a sandwich. Because I thought, this is a square, and that's a square, and that's what they're for. See, I've got no idea what I was doing as a child, and most children have no idea what they're doing but they don't pretend like they do. They'll admit they know have no idea what they're doing. Just ask a child why they drew all over the wall. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. They're not sure what they're doing, and they make mistakes constantly. But if you've ever been in education, or if you know anything about teaching and raising children, let them make mistakes. That's how they learn. They learn by making mistakes. They learn by trying. They learn that they're not sure what they're doing. They learn by figuring it out that they have no idea what the right way is, and so they let others help them. That's how we have to be. We have to be like kids. We have to think, even though I've been a Christian for 30 years, even though I have a degree in theology, even though I've been doing this thing for so long, I've got no idea what I'm doing. I've got no idea if this is the right thing, and I have to let Jesus do the right thing. I've got my ideas, and Jesus has his ideas, and I'm going to let his ideas take precedence. I have to remember that I'm not the most right person, that I don't have it all figured out. Pastors, deacons, leaders, we all have to say that to ourselves occasionally. We have to remind ourselves that we're not the smartest person in the room. We have to remind ourselves that we're not the experts on faith that we sometimes pretend that we are. We're not professionals. It's the Holy Spirit that's the professional. It's the Holy Spirit that is doing the work, and it's him and him alone who can change this church. There's no person that we could have hired to be our lead pastor that could have changed Avenue Road on their own. But it's the Holy Spirit that is changing this church. So let's stop trying to do it on our own, and let's continue to let the Holy Spirit do amazing things. The third thing that we see in this verse Uh, is we see where all of this starts. We see where all of this begins. We really see where our identity starts. This is where I want to focus on the rest of what we're talking about today. Uh, Verse 17, or the last half of verse 17, in the beginning of 18, it says, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. That's amazing. Being rooted and grounded in love, you maybe understand just how far Jesus' love really goes. The dimensions of how deep and how wide and how far his love goes. So what does it mean to be rooted and grounded in love, though? Because Paul uses this metaphor a few times, actually. He uses this metaphor of being rooted in Colossians 2. He uses it other times, and it's a great metaphor uh, for where faith begins or where faith starts. And it sounds pretty, but we have to understand it or it means nothing. Being rooted and grounded in love, that gives us this great imagery. And that would make a great church slogan. And as a matter of fact, I Googled it, and there are many churches that have that as their slogan, rooted and grounded in love. And I love it, but only if we understand it. 
So this idea of being rooted and grounded is a metaphor, it's for farming or for agriculture. Um, I married a farmer, which basically is a reminder every day that I have no idea how anything works in terms of farming. Uh, it is a reminder that I have no idea where food comes from or how we get it, but that I just know it's at the grocery store. I know nothing about farming at all, but I do know a little bit about biology. The, Paul, the metaphor that Paul is using here is about plants. And if you've taken grade 11 biology, or if you've taught grade 11 biology, we have many teachers here, you'll understand science a bit, you'll understand how plants grow. You'll understand the importance of roots and how the roots are really one of the most important things about a plant. Because roots, if, uh, if you're unsure, quick biology lesson here, but roots are the nutrient transport system of the plant or of the tree or of the crop. Roots extend out into the earth and they transport all the important things like phosphorus, nitrogen, all the nutrients and minerals that are in the ground. They transport them and they soak them up and they bring them up into the tree. The plant or the tree needs these things to survive. The roots reach out and they soak up those things and they bring them into the being. Essentially, the roots feed the plant or the tree. They are what allows the plant to continue to survive. If you sever the roots from any plant, that plant will likely die very soon. So if we are supposed to be rooted and grounded, we are supposed to be rooted and grounded in what? Well, Paul says, in love. So love is the soil in this metaphor of being rooted and grounded. Love contains all those nutrients. Love is the thing that our roots go out into and we soak up and receive love and we bring love into us and love is what feeds us and the love of Jesus is what keeps us surviving and keeps us healthy. The love that we are rooted in, that we are soaked in, is what helps us to not just survive but to thrive and to grow and to reach out and to become huge trees. Being rooted in the love of Jesus feeds us. But there's something else important that roots do. Now, I want you to think of a big tree, the biggest tree you've ever seen. If you go on out west, you might have seen some of those giant redwoods that you can actually drive through. Uh, I've never been fortunate enough to see those, but the pictures are just insane and blow my mind that trees like that exist. But I've seen some huge trees, so I want you to think of the biggest tree you've ever seen. We've got some big ones outside if you haven't been to a forest, but... Some of these trees can be 50, 60, 100, over that size. They can be massive. And my question is, if they're so tall, why don't they fall over? What stops them from simply tumbling? If you've ever seen any kind of a contact sport, you know that the taller and skinnier you are, the more likely you are able to be knocked over. Right? We know the little short guys are the ones that are hard to push over. There's not a lot of tilt in them. But a big tall guy is a bit easier to kind of push over, a little tilt over. So why don't trees tip over? What is stopping a tree from when a big gust of wind comes and blows it? What is stopping it from just simply blowing over? Well, it's the roots. It's the roots that stop it. Well, how does that work then? I learned something when I was, I was preparing this message. I was thinking, yeah, the roots, they go so deep and they go really deep and that's what anchors us. But the roots of trees and plants generally, at most, would go to a meter and a half to two meters deep. Even if your tree is 100 feet tall, you might go two meters deep. What actually stops them, what actually gives them strength, is them going out. I learned that trees, generally the height of a tree is also the distance out its roots will grow. And its roots will grow in every direction. So a 60-foot tree, some of those trees that are outside in that yard right there, their roots will go out in every direction, that same distance that they are high. 
And that's what anchors a tree. That's why if you've ever been to uh, Camp Hermosa recently, we were there for Cam's baptism, or if you've ever been to any of the escarpment and you see these trees that are sitting on the edge of a mountain and they've got no roots deep because they're on rock, they're not falling over because the roots go back 60 to 100 feet into soil. And that's what anchors the tree. The roots go so far out that as long as there is soil nearby for them to hold on to, the tree will just be fine. And Paul uses that metaphor about being rooted in love. Being rooted in love and grounded in love means that you're not just rooted a tiny little bit, isolated to where you are, but that you are rooted deep and far and wide. You are rooted all over in love. Being anchored in love is what keeps you from being pushed over or blown over when winds come. Because if you've been a Christian for a long time, I'm sure you'll agree that faith is not easy. And being a Christian doesn't automatically make your life easier. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean your life will automatically become perfect. In fact, most people that I talk to, they think it's quite the opposite. That when they become a Christian, their life gets a lot harder. They get attacked a lot more. Their life becomes tougher. And the love of Jesus, that soil that we are rooted and grounded in, the soil that feeds us and nourishes us and helps us, that's also what we cling to when storms come. That's what our roots extend out far and hold tight to and hold fast to so that winds come and try to knock us over. We are anchored so deep and so far and wide that we won't be knocked over. When life turns to crap and things start to get hard, being rooted in love, being anchored in love, being high and low and deep and wide, that is what makes us tough. That is what makes us stand. That is what makes us strive. There's one more metaphor about being rooted that's really important. Being rooted alone is tough. One tree all by itself in the middle of a field is still strong, but not as strong as a tree rooted in a forest of other trees. And why is that? Well, it's because you have all these trees with their roots extending out 60 to 100 feet in every direction, and they're interlapping. They're crisscrossing. They're running over one another. They're tying over one another. They are rooted together. And that's why church is important. That's why this family is important. That's why it's important not to try to walk faith all by yourself, but you're supposed to walk it in a forest full of other believers. Our roots will spread out deep and far and wide and crisscross with other believers, and that will strengthen us too. We'll hold on to each other. So sometimes when it gets hard, being rooted in the soil and being rooted and anchored in that love, we're also rooted and anchored in the love that others are anchored into. That'll make us all stronger. The very last thing we see in this verse almost seems a little bit out of place, but makes sense if you understand the context. We see a little verse where it says, the love of Christ surpasses all knowledge. And it seems a little bit like, well, why'd you throw that one in there, Paul? If you understand Greek culture, Greek culture at this time is all about knowledge. It's all about knowing. The more you know, the more powerful you are. The more you know, the more respect you have. The more you know, basically, the better and more important person you are. So knowledge is quite literally the most important thing you could have. But Paul is reminding them here that that's not where their power comes from. That's not what makes them powerful. Paul is reminding them that the love of Christ is more important and more powerful than knowledge. Love is more important than knowledge. 
And that's a message that a lot of us sometimes need to remember. I hear people sometimes when I say, well, how come you're not reaching out to your friend? They say, Luke, I just don't know the Bible well enough. I don't know all the backstories. I don't know all the different Romans roads or way to bring people to Jesus. I don't know those things. And I remind them that that's not what's important. You know the love of Jesus? Well, then that's enough. It's a message that I wish more pastors would write on our desks, would write on our Bibles, would write on our hearts, that the more we know doesn't make us a better Christian. Knowledge about God, knowledge about the history of faith, knowledge about Israel and all the things that happened are not as important as experiencing the love of Christ. And that's the most important thing we could teach here today. You don't need to memorize more Bible verses. You don't need to know more scripture lessons. You don't need to know all these secret ways to evangelize and bring people to Jesus. You don't need better ways to approach your friends about Christ. That's not what's gonna be the difference maker. What the difference maker will be is the more you experience the love of Christ, the more you can show them and tell them what it's like and why they should have that too. I read something recently, it was a quote, and it said, no one has ever debated someone into becoming a Christian. But someone may become a Christian when they experience the love of Jesus Christ shining through a friend. We're a society that is focused on knowing more, understanding more, learning more. Our whole culture is driven by education. You really can't get a great job these days unless you at least have a bachelor's because everyone working at Starbucks has one too. Our education, our degrees, all these things, it makes us more powerful in society's name. It makes us more powerful when we're trying to write emails or letters, but none of that matters in the church. The number of degrees we have doesn't make you a better witness for Jesus because if you haven't experienced the love of Jesus, then it doesn't matter. The love of God is infinitely more great, infinitely more powerful, infinitely more amazing than anyone could ever imagine or understand, and we'll never be able to fully know it, but we can try for the rest of our lives to get to know it more. When Jesus was summing up the law, What verbs did he use? He said love. What's the most important? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. Love yourself. Love is the central message of the gospel. Loving Jesus is a most important trait and the most important thing that we at church could be known for. We don't need to be the richest church in money. We don't need to be the biggest church in size. We don't need to have the largest congregation. We need to be the richest church in love. We need the biggest church in love. We need love more than we need anything else at Avenue Road. If we know the love of Jesus, that love will spill over into our lives to see our friends and our family. Others will see that love and be attracted to it. Jesus draws people to himself. If we experience the love of Jesus, we won't need to be rooted in anything else. We want to just keep soaking up that good soil, that good nutrient-filled soil, because if we have experienced and understand the love of Jesus, then we know we can't do it on our own. We know that the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to do it from us. If we have truly experienced the love of Jesus, nothing will be able to stop this church. The enemy has no chance against the church full of people who know and experience the love of Jesus. If we have love, then nothing else matters. We need to be rooted and grounded in love, in the love of Jesus Christ. So today here at Avenue Road, we start over. We start fresh. 
Over the last many years at Avenue Road, we have been rooted and grounded in many things. We've tried programs, we've tried being rooted and grounded in those things. We've tried being rooted and grounded in the most attractive or tempting services or ideas, but from this point forward, we are rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus and in nothing else. And may that reason be the reason that people come to Avenue Road. May that be the thing that draws others into this community, others into this faith walk together, others into this forest of believers. So may the love of Jesus shine brighter and farther than anything else we could ever do on our own. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love. God, thank you that that love was ultimately demonstrated and displayed on the cross. Lord, forgive us that sometimes we forget and we try to do things on our own here. Lord, forgive me for trying to do things on my own, through my own power. But Lord, remind us that it's you. It's your spirit that is the powerful one. It's your spirit that is doing the work here at Avenue Road. And it's your spirit that we need to let continue doing the the work here at Avenue Road. Lord, remind us how rich and beautiful the soil of your love is. Lord, remind us that that is the only thing we need is to be rooted and anchored in that love. And Lord, that love will help us grow. That love will keep us strong. That love will be the thing that attracts others to this beautiful forest of believers. Father, remind us of that. Write it on our hearts daily. In Jesus' name, amen.